0: So we'll start the evening uh, by taking the five precepts together or for those who wish to take the eight precepts? So I will uh, we'll do this call and response. Um, the preliminary homage, I will just uh, say it once, and then we can repeat together three times. Going to the refuges, uh, we can do the first stanza call and response, and then after that, we can do it together. And the precepts, we'll do the first one call and response, and then the other one's just the part that changes. And then for the precepts, I thought it would be nice tonight if after we say the precept in Pali, we'll, we'll read it in English together so we know what we're committing to. Namo tasa, bhagavato, arahato, Samma sambudasa. Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Duthiyampi buddham Sernam gacchami Duthiyampi dhammam sarnam gacchami Duthiyampi sangham sarnam gacchami tatiampi buddham sernam gacchami Tatiampi dammam sernam gachami Tatiampi sangam sernam gachami Panatipata Panatipata Panati, panati Sikapadam Sikapadam Samadi yami, Adinadana Adinadana Adina dana, Ramani, Sikapadam, Brahmacharya, Brahmacharya, Ramani, Sikapadam, I forgot to do the English part. (laughs) Let's go back to number one and just do the English. I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. Number two. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. Number three. I undertake the precept to refrain from any kind of intentional sexual activity. Musawada, Musawada, Musawada We Ramani, Sikapadam samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. Sura, Sura, Sura Maria, Majapamadatana, Majapamadatana. Way Ramani Sika Padam Yami. I undertake the precept to refrain from using intoxicant liquors and drugs that lead to carelessness. So, for those who wish to take the eight precepts, Wikala BOJANA Wikala BOJANA Way Ramani Sika Padam yami. I undertake the precept to refrain from eating at the wrong time. Nacha, Nacha, Gita Gita Wadita Wisuka dasana Visuka dasana mala malaganda wilepana pana, pana darana mandana. Vibusanatana Vibusanatana ramani kapadam Padam yami, I undertake the precept to refrain from dancing, singing, music, going to shows, wearing garlands and beautifying myself with perfumes and cosmetics. Ucha Sayana Mahasayana. Ucha Mahasayana, maha sayana, wei I undertake the precept to refrain from using high and luxurious seats and beds. And then altogether, idam me silam maga pachayo hotu. Thank you. So we're here uh, on this retreat together developing wakefulness cultivating the awakened heart and mind. But how do we do that? How do we pay attention to our lives with balanced energy? For many people, this is um, a question that arises quite often in practice. And for most of us, it's an ongoing part of practice to answer this question. So tonight, my talk is going to be on a balanced application of effort. The Pali word for effort is virya. So my talk tonight is on virya. I'd like to start with a quote from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya, about the... Well, it's a little bit about the paradox of effort. In this... Sutra, a deva, or an angelic being, a heavenly being, is asking the Buddha some questions about effort. So the deva says, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. So crossing over the flood is a kind of metaphor that is often used in Buddhist teachings for um, uh, found freedom from suffering, liberation. So tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. And the Buddha answers, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the deva, but how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? The Buddha says, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the Deva says, At long last, I see an honorable one, totally unbound, who, without pushing forward, without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. In a move that is both delightful and intriguing, you may have noticed that the Buddha didn't tell us what to do. (laughs) He did, however, give some good hints about what not to do. (laughs) He didn't push forward, and he didn't stay in place, and that's how he crossed over the flood. So perhaps uh, pushing forward and staying in place are two extremes that we want to avoid in our application of effort to our spiritual practice, and then perhaps a skillful effort lies somewhere in the middle between these two extremes. So we'll take a few moments to look at these two extremes. The one extreme is of, as the Buddha says in the sutra, staying in place, staying in one place. And this could be taken as not making any effort at all to develop spiritually. And if we don't make any effort to develop our minds and our hearts, we will find that they just go on in their usual, often troublesome sort of way. If we do nothing, we sink, as the Buddha said. We sink and drown in the stories and turbulence of our hearts and minds. We live distracted, lost in anxiety and busyness, lost in fabricated um, stories of the mind, lost in negative emotions, reactivity, and dullness. So if we make no effort to develop spiritually, we live disconnected, And we have little chance to develop wisdom. And we may not even realize this till we stop, take a look, sit down, be quiet. So it's clear that we need to make some effort if we wish to tame our hearts and our minds. As you must know by now, uh, meditation takes energy and effort, dedication, and patience. We may sometimes want instant meditation instead of insight meditation. (laughs) We do, most of us live in a culture that worships instant everything, instant messaging, fast food, but not in meditation. It doesn't work that way. We have to work slowly and diligently, gently, and with persistence. Traditionally, when effort is talked about, um, there is mentioned the four great efforts. There are four great efforts that we make in meditation. The four great efforts of discouraging, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. And I'm only going to mention them briefly because, well, I'll explain why. But it's discouraging unwholesome states of mind and abandoning wholesome states of mind that have arisen. So the hindrances, for example, discouraging the hindrances, abandoning the hindrances. The other two great efforts are of developing or encouraging wholesome states of mind like wisdom, compassion, calm, joy. So encouraging wholesome states of mind and maintaining them once they arise. So basically discouraging unwholesome states of mind and encouraging wholesome states of mind. Now there's a problem when we mention these four great efforts sometimes is that people can feel like then we sit down and we try to manipulate our minds. And we try to make them fit this neat little package. No unwholesome states of mind and just wholesome ones. And that doesn't work. So the important thing to remember with these um, four great efforts is that mindfulness is the factor of mind that will help us do all that. Mindfulness or awareness. So keeping it simple. You know, having that framework that, yes, we want to encourage wholesome states of mind and and we don't want to encourage unwholesome states of mind. But we do that through awareness, not through trying to manipulate our experience. Mindfulness naturally discourages the hindrances. You may have noticed that when you're more mindful, the hindrances are less likely to arise. And when they do arise and you turn your attention to them, they have less power. They're less likely to continue and get carried away. Mindfulness likewise encourages clarity and wisdom and kindness. It's just natural. So staying in one place on retreat this extreme to avoid staying in one place. And retreat, it may mean getting too comfortable and not stretching at all in our practice. So maybe too many tea breaks or too many naps or too many skipped walking meditations. We can check for ourselves. I do yoga, and I find that if I don't stretch just a little bit, push just a little bit beyond what I'm used to doing. I don't develop further. My yoga doesn't develop further. and I think that's one of the rules also of strength training. You know when you're doing, uh, what do you call these? Whatever. Exercises to strengthen your muscles. That you have to um, push the edge a little bit. If you just keep doing the same amount you don't develop stronger muscles. And a retreat's a little bit like that, you know, that we have to uh, stretch a little bit out of our comfort zone sometimes, not limit ourselves. And stretching on retreat has its own kind of reward. There's this feeling of, oh, I don't have to limit myself. It's satisfying. However, it needs to be done with kindness. And sometimes, if we're already feeling pretty stretched, it's not time to stretch more. So we really have to pay attention to our practice to see what is appropriate for us as far as stretching goes. Sometimes we will have to call forth our inner hero or heroine when we practice. in mythology, um, novels, (laughs) uh, poems, epic poems, there's always, there's often these stories of epic journeys that the hero or the heroine has to undertake. Some great task, very difficult task. There's often many obstacles, right? There's often, times of great discouragement where it seems impossible that that our hero or heroine will actually um, achieve what they're trying to do seeming defeat at times. And what does the hero do or the heroine do in these stories? They just keep going basically. That's their greatest strength, right? They just keep going. So that's what we do on retreat. There will be times in this epic journey that we undertake that we will be discouraged, and it will seem like the hindrances have beat us once and for all and that uh, it may look discouraging and hopeless at times. But we keep going, and sometimes we call this courageous effort. We have to call forth sometimes those inner resources to make courageous effort. I like the story of one um, of the nuns in the time of the Buddha who exemplifies this for me. There was a woman named Patachara, and uh, she was a young woman. And... uh, Various things happened in her life, but at one point she had a very bad 24 hours, a very bad day. It is said that in 24 hours she lost both of her children, one of them to drowning in a flood and the other one was carried off by an eagle. She lost her husband who came to uh, meet with her by him being bitten by a poisonous snake. And she lost her parents and siblings in a house fire said that all of this happened within 24 hours, and Patacara, um understandably lost her mind. She uh, was quite crazy for a while, crazy with grief. And at a certain point, she met the Buddha and um, regained her sanity and became a nun. And I'm going to read the what's known as the Enlightenment poem that uh, she wrote. In those days, it was apparently typical to write a poem after you became fully enlightened. And you can get the sense from this poem that she uh, worked hard over many years and that perhaps hit the wall a number of times um, but kept going. Pachachara says, when they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, and when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Why haven't I found peace? Maybe a question that we ask sometimes. And you just in that single sentence, you can get the sense that she had to call, forward, call forth um, courageous effort to keep going. The other thing I like about this poem is that it points towards um, one way that we can stretch in meditation, and that's through what we call continuity or through being aware as we go through our day. Her mind became free, not when she was sitting cross-legged in meditation, but when she was going to bed and she was um, being mindful of all that she was doing. So one way we can um, stretch that's very valuable for our practice is to um, look at how we can bring mindfulness into all of our activities during the day. Now, for some of you, that might seem quite daunting. I do remember the first time that it was suggested to me by a Joseph 10 days into that first uh, retreat that I did here. And my immediate reaction was, you've got to be kidding. It was like, uh, no way. <laughs> it seemed like way too, um, too much to take on. And so what he suggested, and what you can do, is just start small. If you're wanting to work with this, start with um, an activity or two that you'd like to do mindfully, maybe brushing your teeth or taking a shower. Once uh, somebody asked Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Vietnamese monk, said, how do you um, keep mindful during the day? And Thich Han replied, I try to find the most pleasant way to do things. So if uh, it seems daunting to be continuous, why don't you start with something pleasant? Start with a few things that you do during the day that are pleasant, like drinking tea or brushing your teeth. Brushing your teeth can be pleasant because it's tasty, right? I don't know, on retreat I always thought brushing teeth was kind of a fun thing to do. <laughs> there's, not, there's not a lot of entertainment. It's like, mm, mint, yeah. <laughs> Another um, usually pleasant activity is eating. And so uh, eating meditation is also a great um, thing to add to your um, repertoire, if you haven't already started to do so. Eating meditation is fascinating. I mean, have you ever really just tasted a bite of rice? You know, we think of rice as perhaps a kind of dull food that we just take to fill our stomachs. But if we really eat a bite of rice mindfully, it's quite an amazing experience or our thoughts, watching our minds while we're waiting in line for lunch? Anybody here willing to have their thoughts while they're waiting in the lunch line broadcast for the rest of us? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fascinating. Sometimes I like to tell a little story of of one time when I was waiting in the line here for lunch. It was uh, uh, it was one of these three-month retreats, so there were... Those times we filled the place up a little bit more. We didn't have only single rooms, we had some doubles. So we had 100 yogis plus staff and everything. And I was fourth in line for lunch, waiting for them to ring the bell. And the thought that was going through my head was, there won't be enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> you know, it's like, fourth in line. <laughs> we can learn a lot by paying attention to our minds, as we are in line, as we're getting food. Another thing I would do at that retreat is I, I had this rule I had to eat everything I took. Just felt like kind of basic courtesy and for the, the world, and, you know, common sense. But I never ceased to be amazed by how much the food on the plate would grow from the time that I served myself to the time I sat down. You know, as I would serve myself, it always seemed like, you know, maybe it was barely enough. (laughs) And then I would sit down and go, oh, my God. (laughs) Look at all this food. How did that happen? And I would do it day after day, too. I found that quite fascinating. You know, it's like it took a long time to actually learn. So eating meditation, very interesting. So sitting down with your plate of food and just noticing seeing. Taking the fork, noticing the lifting. Food in the mouth, the chewing, the swallowing really take your time and so we can find other ways um, on retreat that we can stretch if we're not doing the first sitting perhaps some morning just trying it out see what happens and then when we stretch you know it's important to see what the results are and if we stretch and we find that it's just making us tighter maybe that's not appropriate right then. If we stretch and we find that it helps strengthen our practice, then it can be a good thing to do. So being willing to stretch and then look at the results from that. Here's one of my favorite stories about uh, stretching. It's from, um, wow, well, Sokchen teachings. One of my teachers at Tashi Jong was Amtrin Tojin. He was a great yogin who lived previously at Kampagar in eastern Tibet. Kampagar is a very steep place in between cliffs. His guru, Kamtru Rinpoche, put him in a high mountainous place for nine years. His practice developed well, and everything was quite easy. The place had beautiful views and a lot of space, and nothing changed much. He went to see Kamtro Rinpoche and said that now he needed a horrible place to medicate, meditate <laughs> <medicate>. <laughs> meditate, because everything in his previous place was so good. So Kamtro Rinpoche sent him to a small cave in a cleft between mountains. The sun never came into the cave, and it was very damp and cold. It was near a... Uh, Big waterfall and it's about fourteen thousand feet up. A place with a lot of bad smells and very damp. The wind roared down the cleft and made it impossible to light a fire. His cave was full of bird shit. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> he stayed there for five years and his practice really improved. <laughs> now any difficult doesn't worry him. Whatever whatsoever occurs is nothing to him. This is an excellent example for us to follow. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to leave IMS and go look for a cave. <laughs> it can seem austere here enough sometimes. It was kind of cold and damp today. <laughs> but what I like about that is, is the, that he understood that the point wasn't to be comfortable. The point was to learn, to learn how to be happy under any conditions. I just want to say, before I move on, um, if you're at a point in your meditation where um, you're really challenged, there's a lot going on, perhaps emotionally, um, it's not always a good time to stretch. One thing about listening to Dharma talks in the hall is to know which ones are talking to you and which ones aren't. So sometimes we'll be talking in the hall and and uh, people will uh, automatically take what we say and um, to know that uh, you have to, that, you know, there's 80 of you out there. And so to um, be careful not to take what we say and then impose it upon your practice, but to take what's useful for your practice from what we say. So that was one one extreme the Buddha talked about, staying in one place and sinking. The other extreme that he warned us against was pushing forward, and he said that when he pushed forward, he was whirled about. So pushing forward may be going to the other extreme in our practice of trying too hard, using our will forcefully, striving, trying to make something happen in our practice. And what we find when we push forward and use our will too strongly is that we actually exacerbate the turmoil in our minds. As the Buddha said, he was whirled about. So one example of pushing forward may be trying to force concentration, trying to make your mind stay with the breath or your anchor, bringing in a kind of tightness of trying to hold on to that anchor, or beating yourself up when you find that you're away from the anchor, as if there were some problem with that. We can't force concentration. Concentration just develops by each moment that we wake up. Each moment that we come back to this present reality, concentration builds. And in one of meditation's numerous paradoxes, the more we strive and try to be present, the more disconnected we get, the further we get away from connection. Check it out sometime. Check it out sometime when you're trying to make something happen in your practice. How connected are we in that moment? See what happens if we settle back. How connected are we then? A little story from Philip Kaplow in um, Awakening to Zen. Some of you may know the story of the Zen master who was asked by a student how long it would take him to get enlightened. The master said, about 15 years. The student said, what, 15 years? Well, it might take 25 years in your case. (laughs) It would take 25 years in my case? On second thought, it would probably take 50 years. (laughs) How vividly this illustrates a fundamental point. Pains and pressure often come up because of an over-eagerness in practice, not an over-eagerness for the Dharma, but an over-eagerness to get something out of meditation and get it very quickly, to get it and run, so to say. So skillful effort means putting forth full energy in our practice without striving. It's a bit like a koan to figure out what that means. It's not so simple. We usually have to do a little bit of striving first in order to understand, to understand for ourselves. One form of striving is to have expectations about your practice. And generally, those expectations go something like, my practice should be going differently than it is. Some form of that. Could be interesting to count the number of times that you have some kind of thought like that in a day. Something different should be happening than what is. Or another way that we strive is to have agendas about healing. Trying to force this opening process to happen quickly. Trying to work through, work through something. A certain fear or a pain. Usually when we say that we want to work through something, what we mean is we want to get rid of it. We can check out, does this bring peace to the mind or does it agitate the mind? It's actually a little bit aggressive towards the self. So when we're connecting with something that arises in our practice, it can be very useful to check the attitude that is happening in the mind. Is there striving? Is there an agenda? Is there an expectation? Or is there curiosity, acceptance? We learn that freedom and happiness comes through acceptance of our arising experience in each moment, and that transformation happens naturally from this process Trungpa Rinpoche, the famous Tibetan teacher, said, There is no need to struggle to be free. The absence of struggle is itself freedom. There is no need to struggle to be free. The absence of freedom, the absence of struggle is itself freedom. So if we find that we're struggling with something in our practice, Check out what's happening. Is there striving? Is there a struggle to be free that's actually getting in the way of freedom? So ultimately, um, this question of skillful effort is a balancing act. And the way we work with effort in our practice is that we notice when it's off and we adjust. So we notice when when there's tightness or striving and we settle back into a more receptive mode. And then we can also notice on the other hand when there's not a commitment to meeting the experience and there's Um, uh, maybe too relaxed an attitude, kind of a wandering about our day. And then maybe we will recommit, adjust by recommitting to our intention to be present. And so we're going to have sometimes when our effort will feel right on and then it will feel out of balance and we adjust. The Buddha compared it to holding a bird in the hand, trying to hold that bird gently. And if we hold the bird too lightly, it'll fly away. If we hold the bird too tightly, we'll suffocate it. So how to hold the bird gently with just the right amount of pressure? At first in our practice, teachers help us understand this, will help us balance our effort. And then over time, we learn how to do it for ourselves. So part of this process of effort, there will be times, as I said, in the epic journey where we may hit the wall in a book called uh, To Shine, One Corner of the World by David Chadwick. It's a book of um, stories from Suzuki Roshi's uh, students. It's quite a delightful book. A student of Suzuki Roshi's, a publisher of Beat Poetry, saw his teacher of a year and a half in a private interview. He said that he couldn't continue, that every time he sat meditation he started to cry. I can't take it, he said. I'm leaving. I can't be here anymore. Suzuki didn't tell him to stay. He merely said, you try and you try and you fail and then you go deeper. So part of our process may be hitting our edge, and then we go deeper. We just keep going. So this word virya is usually translated as effort. Sometimes that's not the best translation for us Westerners. Because we hear that word and automatically we're already going. (laughs) You know, like sometimes that word effort is like no different than striving to us. It's like we don't even know the difference. And so sometimes um, a better translation might be diligence. Diligence. So a big part of effort, of skillful effort, is just showing up on the cushion, and the walking, just having the intention to show up for our lives. Nurturing the conditions that lead to wakefulness. One teacher named Deer Vamsa talks about it as hens sitting on eggs. Diligent effortlessness. I like that. He says, and hens, you know, they just sit on the eggs. They're diligent about sitting on the eggs. They stay there. But they don't look like they're doing that much. (laughs) But they are. (laughs) They're being diligently effortless. (laughs) Or another way we could talk about effort is perseverance. That's similar to diligence, right? Perseverance, a steady, sustained application of energy. My partner and I like to go hiking. Uh, Sometimes we climb mountains. And uh, not big ones, but you know, big enough. And we have very different style of hiking. He likes to um, go fast, you know, and then stop and rest. And my way of hiking is I'm a plotter. I like find my speed, and I just go, and I like to just stay steady. It's slower, right? but I don't really like to stop and rest. I like to just find the right speed that I can um, keep going. Maybe both of these ways are good for getting to the top of a mountain, but my way is better for meditation practice. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) she knows my partner. (laughs) So, um, you know, so so for practice, you know, finding the right uh, speed that we can just keep going is better than, like, trying really hard and then going taking a two-hour nap, you know. Finding the steadiness is best. Got a lot left in <laughs> its seat <laughs> 15. All right, so uh, sometimes it's skillful um, to back off and practice. And so if you find that you are getting too tight or too wound up, you know, sometimes it's good to take a walk, have a mindful cup of tea, to bring in some expansiveness. Or another way we've talked about is to use sound as your anchor. It's a way of um, accessing ease and relaxation. Last month, I was uh, doing a retreat up at the Forest Refuge, and um, the monk giving the the talk told a story. Apparently, this is a true story of um, in Germany. There was a car accident, and a car wound up in the river. And the guy got out, okay, the person who was driving it. Um, But later they were asking, well, how did you, you know, why did you drive into the river? And he said, well, I was going along the road and I was listening to my GPS system, and it said to turn left, so I turned left. (laughs) (laughs) And so he followed this GPS system and went uh, right into the river. (laughs) So the moral of the story is (laughs) that we have to... um, listen within ourselves to what is true about our own practice. <laughs> and so it's like I said, if you know one of us up here giving a talk and what that person is saying is not true for your practice at that point, it's important to listen to what you need. And like Sometimes that means backing off. So not to get too rigid um, about following some idea about what your effort should look like, but very sincerely looking at what's most useful for you in your practice at this time. And your teachers can help you figure that out. Recently, I was um, reading a book by a Zen teacher named Barry Majid, and um, I was fascinated by uh, a thing he calls our secret practice. And he said that our secret practice is how we use our meditation practice with a um, self-centered agenda as a self-centered project. And that we use our practice to try to make ourselves be as we think we should be. Or we use our practice to, as he says, he says we become spiritual anorectics. <laughs> practice becomes a way of purging ourselves of the aspect of our, aspects of ourselves we hate. And so that we can have the secret practice as kind of like a secret agenda we can have in our practice of how Um, practice is going to make us somehow perfect or lovable or worthwhile. And so we'll try to um, uh, force our practice to be a certain way in order to heal these wounds. And it's really important to bring awareness to our secret practice. Most of us have some kind of secret practice. What's going on? To really realize that practice is not about trying to live up to some ideal of how we think we should be, but to rather live what we are, what's happening in the moment. And what's happening in the moment is sometimes a hindrance (laughs) and sometimes calm, sometimes perspective, sometimes no perspective, sometimes happiness, sometimes sorrow, sometimes selfishness, sometimes bodhicitta. Can we let that be okay? Can we be real about what's happening rather than um, imposing on ourselves some kind of ideal? Jack Kornfield has a book called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. And one senior lama said to him, an unidentified senior lama, perfection must be around here somewhere. Where is it? Is it in the next experience or the one after that? My true practice is patience, not wanting something special or unusual to happen. As soon as I see striving and expecting, I know I've lost the great perfection. The hardest thing I still have to pass through is a realization that there is no final perfect condition to rely on. It is all fundamentally changing. You don't learn this quickly. You have to let go into this ordinary perfection again and again. One of my favorite Suzuki Roshi stories, he was addressing a group of students once, and he said, you're all perfect just as you are, and you have some work to do. (laughs) (laughs) To me, that's the right balance. (laughs) To um, You're all perfect just as you are, and you have some work to do. And they can both be true. We usually think of them as having to be opposite, but they can both be true. We start to learn that the present moment is the only place where we can learn to be free, not in the future, not striving for some future happiness. It's hard to get that we're not going anywhere except here. The Sufi mystic Rumi said, make the road home, home. That's what we're trying to do. The deepest realization comes from deep relaxation. There's a story of the Buddha that um, for many years he did very um, many ascetic practices, as I mentioned the first evening, some pretty harsh and difficult practices. And at one point he was um, sitting and he had this recollection of when he was a child. And one time he was sitting under a tree. It was. Uh, the spring planting ceremony, I think. He was sitting under the tree, his father was doing some kingly duties. And he just had this sense of ease and wonder, kind of a childlike, While well, he was a child. He had this sense of ease and wonder and complete relaxation and presence with what was happening. And recognized a deep joy that came from that. And so he remembered this moment when he was um, many years later as an ascetic, And he had this understanding that that was the correct attitude, the correct balance that was going to help him um, become free. So it was a transformative memory for him to remember that childlike simplicity of wonder, of just sitting present, fully present with the moment, not trying to change it or make it anything else than it was, but just being there, alive, relaxed. So this is the kind of um, most helpful stance that we can have in meditation, that curiosity and openness, relaxation, wonder at the present moment. Patience, big part of effort. I'd like to um, read a story. I'll probably end with this. Um, some of you have been on retreat with me, have probably heard it before. I think it's, I love it so much, I'm going to read it again. And it's from a book called um, Slow Movement by Carl Honore. Another marathonic musical event is underway in Halberstadt a small German town famous for its ancient organs. The local St. Burchardi Church, a 12th century pile that was sacked by Napoleon, is a venue for a concert that will end in the year 2640, sponsors permitting. The featured work was written in 1992 by John Cage, the avant-garde American composer. Its title, appropriately enough, is ASLSP, or as slow as possible. How long the piece should last has long been a bone of contention among the cognoscenti. Some thought 20 minutes enough, hardliners insisted on nothing short of infinity. After consulting a panel of musicologists, composers, organists, theologians, and philosophers, Halberstadt settled on 639 years the exact time that had passed since the creation of the town's renowned organ. To do justice to Cage's piece, the organizers built an organ that would last for centuries. Weights attached to the keyboard hold on notes long after the organist has left. The ASLSP recital began in September 2001 with a pause that lasted 17 months. <laughs> During that time, the only sound was that of the organ bellows inflating. In February 2003, an organist played the first three notes, (laughs) which will reverberate through the church until the summer of 2004 when the next two notes will be played. The notion of a concert so slow that no one who attends opening night will live to hear the final notes clearly strikes a chord with the public. (laughs) Hundreds of spectators descend on Halberstadt each time an organist comes in to play the next set of notes. During the long months in between, visitors flock to soak up the residual sounds echoing around the church. What I like about that story is kind of the grand, the large perspective <laughs> and the um, non striving <laughs> nature of this piece. <laughs> <laughs> and so perhaps we can hold our practice a little bit like that organ piece relaxed, spacious, non striving. I'm just going to end with a short little poem by um, the Zen master Dogen. Realization is effort without desire. Clear water all the way to the bottom. A fish swims like a fish. Vast sky transparent throughout. A bird flies like a bird. Let's sit for a moment. is effort without desire clear water all the way to the bottom a fish swims like a fish vast sky transparent throughout a bird flies like a bird